Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Now my hairi mai. I'm John McDonald, kia ora, and welcome into the Hut Zone on Thursday the 9th of February. The Hut Zone is Wellington Access Radio's weekly look into the stories, history, people, poems and music that make the Hutt Valley community. Tonight we finish chatting to a Petoni raised award winning comedian, Hawani Hotani, and get to hear about his Hutt connections, his comedy development technique and future aspirations. We hear more in our history series with Vin or Snow Binge from Upper Hutt Library's archives. This week, Vin talks about his father and the long motor mechanic life his father had in Upper Hutt. We hear a wartime short story from former Eastbourne writer Catherine Mansfield called An Indiscreet Journey, read by LibriVox's Todd, and there is local music from Ice and Ray, Icebergs Off the Coast, and the formula, I dig your act. But let's start the show with our weekly local poetry reading. Streets of Sydney by Michelle Zell, read by Rachel Harrison. After three years' absence, I wandered around streets of Sydney on early spring. A few tourists passed by, Sales girl wipes display windows at empty, luxurious store. Cigarette butts, rubbish papers, scattered on pathways, reminder me the summer of Paris. Suited professionals walked through traffic lights in a hurry at the lunchtime. People waited outside of crowded restaurants patiently. Not far, homeless men laid down on the corner of George Street. I run on the streets of Sydney, Morning sun kissed me gently. I crossed Sydney Bridge with people who expected this moment for so long. Deep breathed freedom and embraced new normal. I left streets of Sydney with joy, with regret, still familiar while feeling different. Streets of Sydney. Time too short to be with you, but I know I will be back when summer sun cast on Streets of Sydney. And that was a Lower Hut Michelle Zhao poem, Streets of Sydney, read by Rachel Harrison. Okay, time to hear the first part of a short story written in 1915 from a very well-known local writer. An Indiscreet Journey by Catherine Mansfield 1915 Recording by Todd She is like Saint Anne. Yes, the concierge is the image of Saint Anne, with that black cloth over her head, the wisps of grey hair hanging, and the tiny smoking lamp in her hand. Really very beautiful, I thought, smiling at Saint Anne, who said severely, 
Six o'clock. You have only just got time. There is a bowl of milk on the writing table. I jumped out of my pajamas and into a basin of cold water, like any English lady in any French novel. The concierge, persuaded that I was on my way to prison cells and death by bayonets, opened the shutters and the cool, clear light came through. A little steamer hooted on the river. A cart with two horses at a gallop flung past. The rapid swirling water. The tall black trees on the far side, grouped together like negroes conversing. Sinister, very, I thought, as I buttoned on my age-old Burberry. That Burberry was very significant. It did not belong to me. I had borrowed it from a friend. My eyes lighted upon it, hanging in her little dark hall. The very thing. The perfect and adequate disguise. An old Burberry. Lions have been faced in a Burberry. Ladies have been rescued from open boats in mountainous seas wrapped in nothing else. An old Burberry seems to me the sign and the token of the undisputed venerable traveler, I decided, leaving my purple peg-top with the real seal-collar and cuffs in exchange. "'You will never get there,' said the concierge, watching me turn up the collar. "'Never, never!' I ran down the echoing stairs. Strange they sounded, like a piano flicked by a sleepy housemaid, and on to the quay. "'Why so fast, ma mignon?' said a lovely little boy in colored socks, dancing in front of the electric lotus buds that curve over the entrance to the metro. Alas, there was not even time to blow him a kiss. When I arrived at the big station, I had only four minutes to spare, and the entrance platform was crowded and packed with soldiers, their yellow papers in one hand and big untidy bundles. The commissioner of police stood on one side, a nameless official on the other. Will he let me pass? Will he? He was an old man with a fat, swollen face covered with big warts. Horn-rimmed spectacles squatted on his nose. Trembling, I made an effort. I conjured up my sweetest early morning smile and handed it with the papers. But the delicate thing fluttered against the horn spectacles and fell. Nevertheless, he let me pass, and I ran, ran in and out among the soldiers and up the high steps into the yellow-painted carriage. Does one go direct to X? I asked the collector, who dug at my ticket with a pair of forceps and handed it back again. Uh, no, mademoiselle, you must change at XYZ. At XYZ. Again, I had not heard. At what time do we arrive there, if you please? One o'clock. But that was no good to me. I hadn't to watch. Oh, well, later. Ha! Ah, the train had begun to move. The train was on my side. It swept out of the station, and soon we were passing the vegetable gardens, passing the tall blind houses to let, passing the servants beating carpets, up already and walking in the fields, rosy from the rivers and the red-fringed pools, the sun lighted upon the swinging train, and stroked my muff and told me to take off that burberry. I was not alone in the carriage. An old woman sat opposite, her skirt turned back over her knees, a bonnet of black lace on her head. In her fat hands, Adorned with a wedding and two mourning rings, she held a letter. Slowly, slowly she sipped a sentence, and then looked up and out the window, her lips trembling a little, and then another sentence, and again the old face turned to the light, tasting it. Two soldiers leaned out of the window, their heads nearly touching. One of them was whistling, the other had his coat fastened with some rusty safety pins. 
and now there were soldiers everywhere working on the railway line, leaning against trucks or standing hands on hips, eyes fixed on the train as though they expected at least one camera at every window. And now we were passing big wooden sheds, like rigged-up dancing halls or seaside pavilions, each flying a flag. In and out of them walked the Red Cross men, the wounded set against the walls, sunning themselves. At all the bridges, the crossings, the stations, a petit soldat, all boots and bayonet. Forlorn and desolate he looked, like a little comic picture waiting for the joke to be written underneath. Is there really such a thing as war? Are all these laughing voices really going to the war? These dark woods, lighted so mysteriously by the white stems of the birch and the ash, these watery fields with the big birds flying over, these rivers green and blue in the light, have battles been fought in places like these? What beautiful cemeteries we are passing! They flash gay in the sun. They seem to be full of cornflowers and poppies and daisies. How can there be so many flowers at this time of the year? But they are not flowers at all. They are bunches of ribbons tied on to the soldiers' graves. I glanced up and caught the old woman's eyes. She smiled and folded the letter. It is from my son, the first we have had since October. I am taking it to my daughter-in-law. Huh? Yes, very good, said the old woman, shaking down her skirt and putting her arm through the handle of her basket. He wants me to send him some handkerchiefs and a piece of stout string. What is the name of the station where I have to change? Perhaps I shall never know. I got up and leaned my arms across the window rail. My feet crossed. One cheek burned as in infancy over the way to the seaside. When the war is over, I shall have a barge and drift along these rivers with a white cat and a pot of mignonette to bear me company. Down the side of the hill followed the troops, winking red and blue in the light. Far away, but plainly to be seen, some more flew by on bicycles. But, really, mon France adore, this uniform is ridiculous. Your soldiers are stamped upon your bosom like bright, irreverent transfers. The train slowed down. Stopped. Everybody was getting out except me. Our big boy, his suppose tied to his back with a piece of string, the inside of his tin wine cup stained a lovely impossible pink, looked very friendly. Does one change here perhaps for X? Another's whose kepi had come out of a wet paper cracker swung my suitcase to earth. What darling soldiers are! Merci bien, monsieur. Vous êtes tout à fait amabile. Uh, not this way said a bayonet. Nor this, said another. So I followed the crowd. Your passport, mademoiselle? Oui, Sir Edward Grey. I ran through the muddy square and into the buffet. A green room with a stove jutting out and tables on each side. On the counter, beautiful with colored bottles, a woman leans, her breasts in her folded arms. Through an open door I can see a kitchen, and the cook in a white coat breaking eggs into a bowl and tossing the shells into a corner. The blue and red coats of the men who are eating hang upon the walls. Their short swords and belts are piled upon chairs. Heavens, what a noise! The sunny air seemed all broken up and trembling with it. A little boy, very pale, swung from table to table, taking the orders, and poured me out a glass of purple coffee. Shh! came from the eggs. They were in a pan. The woman rushed from behind the counter and began to help the boy. Toot sweet, toot sweet, she chirped to the loud, impatient voices. 
there came a clatter of plates and the pop-pop of corks being drawn. Suddenly in the doorway I saw someone with a pail of fish, brown speckled fish, like the fish one sees in a glass case, swimming through forests of beautiful pressed seaweed. He was an old man in a tattered jacket, standing humbly, waiting for someone to attend to him. A thin beard fell over his chest. His eyes under the tufted eyebrows were bent on the pail he carried. He looked as though he had escaped from some holy picture, and was entreating the soldier's pardon for being there at all. But what could I have done? I could not arrive at X with two fishes hanging on a straw, and I am sure it is a penal offense in France to throw fish out of railway carriage windows, I thought, miserably climbing on to a smaller, shabbier train. Perhaps I might have taken them to... Ah, mon Dieu, I had forgotten the name of my uncle and aunt again. Buffard, buffoon, what was it? Again I read the unfamiliar letter in the familiar handwriting. My dear niece, now that the weather is more settled, your uncle and I would be charmed if you would pay us a little visit. Telegraph me when you are coming. I shall meet you outside the station if I am free. Otherwise our good friend, Madame Gricon, who lives in the little toll-house by the bridge, just en face de la guerre, will conduct you to our home. Je vous embarrasse de tentement, Julie Beaufard. A visiting car was enclosed. Monsieur Paul Beaufard. Beaufard? Ah, of course that was the name. Matin Julie et mon oncle Paul. Suddenly they were there with me, more real, more solid than any relations I had ever known. I saw Tante Julie bridling, with a soup tureen in her hands, and Uncle Paul sitting at the table with a red and white napkin tied round his neck. Boifard, Boifard, I must remember the name. Supposing the commissionaire militaire should ask me who the relations were I was coming to, and I muddled the name. Oh, how fatal. Bouffard, no, Boifard. And then for the first time, folding Aunt Julie's letter, I saw scrawled in a corner of the empty back page, Vene, vite, vite. Strange, impulsive woman. My heart began to beat. Ah, uh, we are not far off now, said the lady opposite. You are going to X, mademoiselle? Oui, madame. I also. You have been there before? No, madame. This is the first visit. Really, it is a strange time for a visit. I smiled faintly and tried to keep my eyes off her hat. She was quite an ordinary little woman, but she wore a black velvet toque, with an incredibly surprised-looking seagull camped on the very top of it. Its round eyes, fixed on me so inquiringly, were almost too much to bear. I had a dreadful impulse to shoo it away, or to lean forward and inform her of its presence. Excusez-moi, madame, but perhaps you have not remarked there is an espèce de seagull couche sur votre chapeau? Could the bird be there on purpose? I must not laugh. I must not laugh. Had she ever looked at herself in a glass with that bird on her head? It is very difficult to get into X at present to pass the station, she said, and she shook her head with the seagull at me. Ah, oh, such an affair. One must sign one's name and state one's business. Really? Is it as bad as all that? But naturally... You see, the whole place is in the hands of the military, and, she shrugged, they have to be strict. Many people do not get beyond the station at all. They arrive, they are put in the waiting room, and there they remain. 
Did I, or did I not detect in her voice a strange, insulting relish? I suppose such strictness is absolutely necessary, I said coldly, stroking my muff. Necessary? she cried. I should think so. Why, mademoiselle, you cannot imagine what it would be like otherwise. You know what women are like about soldiers. She raised a final hand. Mad, completely mad. But, and she gave a little laugh of triumph, they could not get into X. Mon Dieu, no, there is no question about that. I don't suppose they even try, said I. Don't you? said the seagull. Madame said nothing for a moment. Of course, the authorities are very hard on the men. It means instant imprisonment, and then off to the firing line without a word. What are you going to X for? said the seagull. What on earth are you doing here? Are you making a long stay in X, mademoiselle? She had won. She had won. I was terrified. A lamp post swam past the train with a fatal name upon it. I could hardly breathe. The train had stopped. I smiled gaily at Madame, and danced down the steps to the platform. It was a little hot room, completely furnished with two colonels seated at two tables. They were large, grey-whiskered men, with a touch of burnt red on their cheeks. Sumptuous and omnipotent they looked. One smoked what ladies love to call a heavy Egyptian cigarette, with a long creamy ash, the other toyed with a gilded pen. Their heads rolled on their tight collars like big overripe fruits. I had a terrible feeling as I handed my passport and ticket that a soldier would step forward and tell me to kneel. I would have knelt without question. What's this? said God one, querulously. He did not like my passport at all. The very sight of it seemed to annoy him. He waved a dissenting hand at it with a No, je ne peux pas manger air. But it won't do. It won't do at all, you know. Look, read for yourself. And he glanced with extreme distaste at my photograph. And then, with even greater distaste, his pebble eyes looked at me. Of course the photograph is deplorable, I said, scarcely breathing with terror. But it has been viséd and viséd. He raised his big bulk and went over to God, too. Courage, I said to my muff and held it firmly. Courage. God, too, held up a finger to me, and I produced Aunt Julie's letter and her card. But he did not seem to feel the slightest interest in her. He stamped my passport idly, scribbling a word on my ticket, and I was on the platform again. That way. You pass out that way. Terribly pale, with a faint smile on his lips, his hand at salute stood the little corporal. I gave no sign. I am sure I gave no sign. He stepped behind me. And then follow me as though you do not see me, I heard him half whisper, half sing. How fast he went, through the slippery mud toward a bridge. He had a postman's bag on his back, a paper parcel, and the montant in his hand. We seemed to dodge through a maze of policemen, and I could not keep up at all with the little corporal who began to whistle. From the toll-house, our good friend, Madame Grigon, her hands wrapped in a shawl, watched our coming and against the toll-house there leaned a tiny faded cab. Montre vite, vite, said the little corporal, hurling my suitcase, the postman's bag, the paper parcel, and the matin onto the floor. Aye, aye, do not be so mad. Do not ride yourself. You would be seen, wailed our good friend, Madame Grigon. Ah, je me fais, said the little corporal. 
The driver jerked into activity. He lashed the bony horse, and away we flew, both doors, which were the complete sides of the cab, flapping and banging. Bonjour, mon ami. Bonjour, mon ami. And then we swooped down and clutched at the banging doors. They would not keep shut. They were fools of doors. Lean back. Let me do it, I cried. Policemen are as thick as violets everywhere. At the barracks, the horse reared up and stopped. A crowd of laughing faces blotted the windows. Franca, mon vie, said the little corporal, handing the paper parcel. It's all right, called someone. We waved. We were off again. By a river, down a strange white street, with little houses on either side, gay in the late sunlight. Jump out as soon as he stops again. The door will be open. Run straight inside. I will follow. The man is already paid. I know you will like the house. It is quite white, and the room is white, too, and the people are... White as snow? We looked at each other. We began to laugh. Now, said the little corporal. Out I flew, and in at the door. There stood, presumably, my Aunt Julie. There in the background hovered, I supposed, my Uncle Paul. Bonjour, madame. Bonjour, monsieur. It is all right. You are safe, said my Aunt Julie. Heavens, how I loved her. And she opened the door of the white room and shut it upon us. Down went the suitcase, the postman's bag, the matin. I threw my passport up in the air, and the little corporal caught it. I'm John McDonald, and you're on the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM, and that was An Indiscreet Journey by Catherine Mansfield, read by LibriVox's Todd. Part 2 of the story plays next week. In the meantime, you can find plenty more readings on their website, which is LibriVox.org. Let's go up the valley and hear more in our history series with Vin or Snow Benge from Upper Hutt Library's archives. This was recorded in 2001 and the interviewer is Upper Hutt Library's Nicola Freyan. Now, we were talking about your father, Len Benge's expansion and moving of his premises in partnership with Ken Gange, is that right? Um, no, um, Ken Gange financed the, the, the building. Dad, oh. Dad, Dad had it built, but Ken Gange um, lent him the money to do it. Oh, I see. Um, Ken Gange had the Gange Carrying Company, yeah. which was adjoining the gar- dad's garage mm. actually it was a door through the back of it went straight into Gange's garage and dad used to do the maintenance on the Gange's trucks so that's why Ken was sort of interested mm. in helping dad because uh, uh, they're good friends and also um, he used to mm. walk straight through the back door into the uh, into Gange's the, the building was built by a man called Jim Morgan M-O-R-G-A-N he lived in Martin Street in Upper Hutt. 
What what period was this? This was in 1937. Right. Yeah. We've only just sold the property last year, so that's now gone out of the vendors. Oh. Yeah. Mm. So from 1937, your your dad was was running the the main garage, yes. was he? In yeah. Upper Hutt. Yeah. That and oh, there was another another garage in Upper Hutt with Bajant's Motors, which is in the old premises of Harper's Garage, where Dad had served his time. Oh. So they were the two main garages in, in the town. Mm. And did they compete um, no, or, or did they each really. do different no. No, models? Or? No, well there seemed to be enough work for everybody those days. Agents, I don't think, well perhaps not according to it in such a bigger way, they had taxis and a petrol, uh, petrol bowser outside the front so they were perhaps a little more into that side of the thing. Mm. But Dad carried on in the business there until my brother uh, joined, my brother Ivan went there in 1951 after he'd served his apprenticeship in Wellington at Dominion Motors mm -hmm. and he stayed there until he went and retired mm -hmm. which time his son Robert took over the business and so overall the, the business was running from 19... 34 to 1990, that's 56 years, mm. uh, over three generations. But Dad was involved in it right up until he was in his 70s, I guess, worked like mad. And 1938, Dad bought a Model A Ford tow wagon, 1928 model, and that was one of the few tow wagons in Upper Hutt, and he used to get lots and lots of salvaging of vehicles and uh, trucks and uh, I used to love going out with Dad on the um, on the tow wagon picking up smashed up cars or broken down cars or um, things that go gone over banks or into ditches and I recall one incident which was quite amusing I suppose to me but not to the owner <laughs> it was um, Bentley's B-E-N-T-L-E-Y-S which were also derivatives of the Benj tribe, um, had a, a, a foul a chook farm in Lane Street mm. at the property of where Zip Industries was. They had a little Morrisate van. It broke down at the farm and Dad had to go down and pick it up in the tow wagon. So he said, uh, well, come on. So away we went, picked the thing up at the back and to keep the front wheel straight towing it, uh, you normally tie the steering wheel with a rope. But Dad said, hop in and hold the steering wheel straight with the back hitched up on the tow wagon, with a, and you tied a rope from the vehicle to the tow wagon to, to uh, tow it as well as hanging on the hook. We're driving along Brown Street, and uh, the rope broke or uh, came undone or something, and the vehicle started to swing back, not backwards, but to and fro from the tow wagon. I probably put my foot on the brake, <laughs> made it worse, slowed it down, and let it off again, and the thing went flying into the back of the tow wagon. <laughs> and almost knocked the body off it, of me sitting in there. I wasn't very old at the time either. <laughs> How old were you? Oh, I don't know, probably about 14 or so, 13 or 14. Mm. 
So it uh, made a bit of a mess of Vista Bentley's little Morrisate van. <laughs> yeah. Another another time, Dad had a rather major job with the tow wagon. One of Campbell's sawmill trucks went over the bank up at Karapoti, an international truck, mm. which was a big truck those days, and Dad had to pull it up from way down the bank with a tow wagon with a hand, it only had a hand winch on the back, and he got a another... I think got a bulldozer on the front of it to hold the truck, hold the tow wagon down and winch this great truck up from down the bank. I think about twice its size. Um, uh, but they did lots of things like that. Many challenges Dad had with the tow wagon and pulling it, res- rescuing vehicles from down, way down banks, and and I, I have uh, lots of times we went out with him salvaging things. I remember picking up a front of an Upper Hutt City uh, Borough Council bus at one time, stowing it in uh, the poor old thing that's just about broke its back. I, I'm, I remember when I broke my section in here in, in the early on oh, the 1956. I used that tow wagon and pulled out uh, about oh, I suppose about 20 dams and plum trees. It was an old orchard here from the McGee's property and and. Uh, I used the tow wagon and that to pull them out with, with the winch. Hmm. Hmm. He's just staying with your father for the moment. What did he look like? Similar build to, to, to pot beans. Fairly solid, not over tall, fairly long in the back, but um, all beans seem to be long in the back. But he was, I suppose, you know, five foot eight or something like that, um, but uh, really solid. Because he mm. Uh, mm. had to be with his his working, and uh, I remember him telling me of um, working on Campbell's logging trucks. And one of the major problems they used to have when they when they Campbell shifted to Powerparam, they had Leyland Comet trucks, logging trucks with jinkers on the back, mm. and they had a two-speed Eaton E A T O N diff in them. The trucks were awfully overloaded and they used to wreck the diffs quite often and it was always on the steepest part of the hill with a load of logs on and mud and Dad and his would always have a spare diff or two in the garage ready to go. He'd get a phone call, Arthur's diff's gone, come over quick to, to Pauperam in the back of, in the hills behind Pauperam which... Uh, was in towards Akataros. Dad would have to go over there and he'd tell me of lying underneath this truck in mud, thick mud often, and picking up, pulling a diff out of this big truck and putting another one in, lying on his back, heaving it in. It's all he could do to pick one up. And how he ever did it, I don't know. Mm. And to get it in there without any mud on it or any dirt into the diff and get the thing going again, uh, he, he often used to say to me, I don't know how I ever lifted them in. <laughs> In his, in his latter days, he often used to be just amazed at his own strength of how he ever got those things in there. Mm. Um, he had to work hard, and this was any he was doing this up until he was 70. Oh. You said that the trucks were usually overloaded. Mm. What, what did that mean? Well, the, the um, load of, loads of logs. The, the, the tonnage of the logs, great big rimu logs that they were pulling out of the bush. Uh, I don't know how many ton they would be, but it gave the truck a pretty hard time 
and up the steep hills they were going and the, mm. it just overloaded the transmission on the thing and something had to go and the diff was usually, the diff or the axles was usually the um, offending problem and um, often it would be a, a broken axle and, mm. and then have them ready, ready to do it. So a lot of Dad's work at the garage was done on taxis. He used to repair the maintenance on most of the taxis in Upper Hutt. All Campbell's trucks, logging trucks, which was a fleet of them. Ganges trucks early on. They later on had their own mechanic. Upper Hutt Borough Council buses, which later became Runciman Motors. Farmers' tractors and everybody else's cars. And he was well-renowned as a, a great mechanic. And he had a, a name that was... Uh, well respected in the town as, as a mechanic and Dad could almost fix anything. I've met many people over the years that said, oh, I remember your dad, he fixed my car when nobody else could fix it. Mm. <laughs> um, and so Dad was um, a guy who loved mechanicking and worked at it all his life. It was his life. Mm. Uh, he just put everything into it, into the garage. I'm John McDonald and you're in the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM and that was Vin Benge talking to Nicola Freyan in 2001 on his memories of an early Upper Hut. Thank you to Upper Hut Libraries for letting us play that interview. Part 13 plays next week. Okay, time for some music from The Formula. Here's I Dig Your Act.
that was the formula and I dig your act. My next guest hopes you dig his comedy acts. Last week we heard part one of my chat with Patoni's Hawani Hotani. Tonight we finish our chat starting with a look at his view of us people in the hut. What's your thoughts then on the Hutt Valley audience? You said that people around the place are different, but not all the same. I saw Jimmy Carr recently, he used Upper Hutt as an example to pick on as a suburb. Mm. What are your take of us in the Hutt? Um, I think the Hutt, the Hutt gets made fun of a little bit. I think I made fun of the Hutt last night a little bit, but... In what way? Just the story of these guys going down the middle of the road and like... They're just walking down the middle of the road and one guy is like holding like a box of Billy Mavs and seeing him being like, wow, this is crazy, you know, because like, like I'm on the motorway right now. <laughs> like, why are you guys walking down the middle of the motorway, box of Billy Mavs? And that seemed in my head to be a very hut thing to happen. Do you know what I mean? And what was the audience reaction when you said that? They laugh? Oh yeah, every joke that I tell, people cry laughing. It's, it's just been non-stop crying. I suppose you, you may temper some of your heart humour because you have quite strong Hutt Valley connections yourself, haven't you? Uh, yeah, I mean, my family lives here. I grew up here, I went to St Bernard's out in the Hutt, um, which apparently is a school that just creates a lot of comedians. Pat Schlambert, for one. Jerome Chandrahausen, James Nakise. Apparently there's maybe more, but I'm not too sure. Um, I don't particularly think of any jokes from the hut very often. I don't really know what I would kind of say. To be honest, I've spent a lot of time bored in the hut as well. Like, there's only so many things you can just talk about with Queensgate, you know? Like, the Dunkin' Donuts is still there. It seems to be going strong. Yeah, not a lot of places in the Queensgate Mall seem to shut down. That's got to be good. Because <laughs> you're a Petoni based, is that right? Yeah, yeah, it will be. I, soon enough I'm going to be kind of popping around. Like I said, it's a lot of travel, so like when I'm not travelling I think I'm going to be living with mum and dad. That's in Patani. Yeah. Before this I've just been living in the city, which has been helpful because producing gigs and stuff, you just kind of want to be right there. But yeah, it's becoming too much moving around because later in the year I'm also going to be, like not that far down, after Wellington Fringe, I'm also going to be heading up to Australia to do some Adelaide Fringe and then some Melbourne Comedy Fest stuff as well with a couple of those two guys. So yeah, it's kind of like impossible to be able to afford rent and travel. And be away and so much, yeah. Yeah. Now you've got a bit of an ambition for Jackson Street for yourself, haven't you? Uh, yeah, because <laughs> I wrote down that I wanted to be uh, the first comedian on the Batoni Walk of Fame. Mostly people who have played for the All Blacks in the 1960s on that road at the moment. But there's people like Tana Umanga and stuff's on there, I think. Yeah, that was funny because I did that for a Dominion Post thing. And that was a joke that my dad wrote because I sent him the, the interview questions and he said that, yeah, you should be on that thing. And I kind of took his <laughs> vibe from it. I think it would be funny to be placed first. down. Yeah. Fair enough. 
I mean, I don't think they've added a new star in ages. Mm. I don't know who's looking after that, but... Probably the Jackson Street program. You may not have done stand-up in the hut before, but you have performed in the hut, like in the Lower Hut Christmas Parade, haven't you? As a child, yeah. Yeah, I performed as an elf, and I think I did a very good job. Still getting rave reviews from people. Um, (laughs) They said that I didn't understand the meaning of Christmas until you saw you as an elf. I remember... They got everybody to write these letters to Santa, and I'd also written a letter to Santa, but I was an elf, so Santa was trying to find these kids to like give their presents to. And he's like, oh, Juani, Juani. And I got to come out from behind him as an elf, who had also <laughs> written him. So I guess I just came, came across as an elf that was like a really big fan of his boss, you know. Do you think the hut has influenced your comedy material at all? Um. Yeah, I'd say so. Going, I th- honestly think that going to St. Bernard's was like, it was like an all-boys school, you know, and it wasn't like, it wasn't particularly flash or, but it also wasn't like terrible. It's just this, really this place where you would just kind of sit down and hang out with your mates and just chat all the time. It's kind of crazy to think now how, like, I remember just sitting down at lunchtime, just sitting and chatting for like, you just talk non-stop for an hour. Actually, now it's not that crazy because now I'm hanging out with comedians all the time. It's very easy to just chat non-stop with them. But like, yeah, when you're a kid, it's just like so easy to just chat with your friends. You'd be sitting with the same exact people every single day, five days a week, hanging out on the weekend. You'd be chatting non-stop for like months with these people. It's kind of, I think it's Seinfeld that says something. It's like, you're never as funny as you were in high school or something like that. And it's funny because being in the comedy scene has felt, when it definitely when I started, felt a little bit like high school, but I had a good high school experience, so it doesn't like, and for me that's like a good thing, you know, mm-hmm. it was, Jerome is kind of like the principal, he's like a nice principal, but like, he's <laughs> An approachable nice. one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the psychic bit that you put into your comedy work, how does that fit in? Um, I just pretend, it's, it's a pretty easy trick. It's just like I very much like say that I'm a psychic and then I'll ask somebody like, okay, I, I guess I could just say the thing. It's like, I'd be like, oh, you know, pick a number between one and 10. And then I'll stare and he'd be like, oh, six. And it'd be wrong. And be like, oh. It's like, oh, you know, usually I get that. Usually that bit goes wrong nine times out of 10. And it's like, <laughs> it's okay. Like, it's, it's a funny bit. It seems to work pretty good. I'm still waiting for the day where somebody like shouts in the middle of it. He's like, he's going to get it wrong on purpose. Or like, <laughs> not that I can get it wrong on purpose. Occasionally you get it right. Occasionally people lie and just pretend that I've got it right because they think that I need to have it right for the show to go well. Yeah. And that's the worst thing. Yeah. <laughs> like when people are so polite that they can't, <laughs> they can't tell me I'm wrong. Um, but that, yeah, I think... Like, that was something that I used to do at parties and things. I just... Parties and home. Like, I would do that with my... I did that with my mum, actually. I remember doing that to my mum, asking her to think of a number between 1 and 10, looking at her intensely. And then I got it right. And that was my mum. But for a minute, she believed that there was some sort of trick to it. You know, like, <laughs> that I actually had read her mind. Mm. And it's, it's funny, like, when I used to do it and get it right people really would think there was something people were really like prone to believe gullible yeah yeah well which is a nice thing i think (laughs) it's nice for me yeah 
but it's funny it's something so silly and it's like because it's one in ten it's somewhat likely you'll get it right but people really did think that i had some sort of power you know hence your sports betting i suppose fitting in quite nicely oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 you can tell by the ferrari i drove in with yeah. how well that's going and musical skills you bring music into your performance too i believe yeah i'm like i can play guitar okay for a comedian I, like, I've never been in a band or anything. I always thought a band would be so much more fun than anything else. I thought that would be the coolest thing to be in. Um, but yeah, I, I play a bit of guitar. It's it's kind of a bit much to be carrying around all the time. So I've tried to do it less and less. What about a ukulele then? I don't actually know how to play the ukulele. I bet you probably could pick it up. <laughs> yeah, I could pick it up. I'm not, like, I, do, I don't want to brag or anything, but I feel like I could pick up some of the same chords yeah. with the ukulele. Yeah, I don't know. I have the guitar. My guitar is really small. Right. Um, which makes it not so bad. Like, it's small enough that I can put it in an Air New Zealand overhead luggage. I'm allowed to do that, which is perfect. I started putting in songs. I used to just, it's kind of, you just do the jokes that you think of. You know what I mean? And what you think of is usually pretty related to what you've been doing. I haven't been playing that much guitar recently, so I haven't really been thinking of any jokes that involve the guitar. Yeah. So how do you develop material? What's your process? Mm, at the moment, I have this process of, if I think of an idea, I'll probably just try to chuck something down on my phone, you know, just some sentence or like a few keywords so that I remember what the idea is. And then when I get a chance to sit down at a cafe or something, I'll bring out the notebook and the pen and paper and, and try to write it down and try to think about being on stage and actually saying these things. And that makes it quite easy to sit down and write because usually, I, I know that a lot of people get writer's block, but it's a little bit easier if I'm, the only things I'm really writing down are a lot of things that I've already thought of. You know what I mean? I, I'd have never done the free writing thing that a lot of people do. And then when I get on stage, I'm a bit loosey-goosey with it at the moment. I could definitely be, I've seen a lot of other people do new material and it's really polished and quite nice. A lot of the time, it is a new audience, even when you're performing a lot. I, to be honest, I get surprised when people say they've seen me a couple times. It, it seems weird to me. In a weird way, I think it's almost been like a mental, like it's helped mentally to to just finish the set and then just, in my mind, they've already forgotten who you are. So just feel fine, you know, regardless of how it went sort of thing. And then occasionally people come up afterwards and be like, oh, good job. And then be like, mm. oh, thank you. But yeah, for the most part, I just imagine that people just forget who I am as soon as I've come off stage, which is probably not something I can just do forever. <laughs> but definitely for a while there is pretty helpful, yeah. Plans for the future, on the longer term, you know, beyond going to Aussie for these festivals, what's your sort of longer term ambition with the comedy work? The real ambition is to be the best comedian that I can be, you know. Like I, I do, I, like I want to be able to make enough money that I can survive off being a comedian for sure. But really, as long as I'm still pushing to be like as good as I can be, and it's kind of like thinking what are the practical things to help me do that. You know, I think continuing to do new jokes, continuing to perform as often as I can, continuing to do as many different types of gigs and in front of as many different types of crowds and stuff. Um, so, like, 
I think the way that's going to come through is like at some point I want to travel you know I want to I'm, I'm just about to turn 28 so I want to be able to do a working holiday visa before most countries the cutoff is like 30 so I want to at least do one more country um, which, be, which country are you thinking? Um, I like Germany <laughs> yeah I've can heard, you speak German? no but I've been to Berlin and you don't have to okay yeah they all speak English there mm-hmm. from there just go to other English speaking places but I mean, I've seen online that there's like, you know, there's a pretty thriving community yeah. in, um, in Berlin. And then, you know, even in places like Barcelona and stuff, they've got like quite a, quite a big contingent of English speaking people mm-hmm. who want to see, want to see comedy. And I kind of love that variety. Um, what about Edinburgh? Is that up there on your, on your to-do list? Yeah, yeah, it is up there. But I've heard that the cost of it is insane. Right. Yeah. Adelaide Fringe is actually the second largest Fringe festival in the world. Um, I mean, it's not Edinburgh, but I would love to go to Edinburgh. It's just, yeah, I've had the, the cost of, unless you know somebody there, that to get accommodation and to do mm. everything, it's going to cost you like 10 grand or like something. Right. It's pretty, it's not something you can just kind of willy-nilly walk into yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, you obviously made, or certainly seemed to make a big impact in the last couple of years since going into the New Zealand comedy scene. Did that take you by surprise? Kind of, yeah. I mean, I've been a bit starstruck at times, you know, like with the opportunities that I've had to perform with some of the people. Because I was really into New Zealand comedy before. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'd always watch, like, All the Seven Days and stuff. My whole family really liked comedy, so we'd always watch, like, the comedy gala stuff and, you know, sort of things like that. Yeah, I have been kind of surprised. It's been, it's been kind of nice. I have weird little moments where I like screenshot it if, if, if somebody, if a comedian that I've seen on TV is like requested to follow me on Instagram or something like mm. that, you know, which is like such a little thing. I, I've met people before who have kind of got into the comedy scene a little bit and then have become the biggest name droppers. Uh, just like constantly be like, okay, I was blah, 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 blah. So I'm like trying to be conscious not to be that guy. Mm-hmm. But also because it's kind of new, I'm a little bit like, just when I'm with my family and stuff, I'm a little bit like, oh, I was with a blah, blah, blah. Just like weirdly being like, I got to see this person from TV. And it's kind of, it's in a weird way, it's been good to do because my sister doesn't care about like NZ comedians that much. So if I drop any name, she's like, I have no idea who that is. And it kind of brings me back down. Yeah. Your advice to others wanting to join in the New Zealand comedy circuit, what, what piece of advice would you give them? Um, comedy is a lot of fun. You know, it can be scary to perform and have people not laugh at your jokes or, you know, feel like you've been embarrassed or whatever. If you keep going with it, you know, if you're consistent and gig, 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 gig and if you want to do it, it's it's kind of worth the time. It's like a very fun thing. It doesn't have to be comedy. <laughs> I mean, just to be creative in something is pretty good. Comedy is a lot of fun. I think a lot of people have it as a bucket list thing. It's definitely worth the thrill of trying. There are these nights where the crowd just kind of like comes alive. Even at an open mic, you get a really hot crowd. And if you're new and you get a really hot crowd and you've got your, you've got your five minutes of jokes, and you know maybe in a tough room they wouldn't do so good but like with this with this hot crowd they really give you all your support and they like they'll pump you up and it's it's 
the feeling of like making a room full of people laugh, even if it's just those like few times, is it's it's pretty thrilling, you know. It's worth pursuing, I guess, if, if you're after that. But also the process of like thinking of jokes and having that process of like, I thought of this, I thought it'd be funny, I'm saying it out loud. It is funny, it's very like reaffirming too. Yeah. So finally, I haven't really asked you, how would you sum up your style of comedy? I didn't really think of it too much. People kind of told me that some of it was weird. Like, like I knew some of it was weird, but then I didn't think it was that weird. Do you know what I mean? I remember talking to somebody and they were like, oh yeah, and you got like the weird thing. And I was like, yeah, I'm not that weird though. But then I would do these kind of crazy noises and stuff. It's a little bit to the side, I guess I'd say. Like I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm playing a character or anything like that. But sometimes I just kind of like zhush up the energy to a crazy level, and then I'm just kind of, I'm just doing the jokes that I think of. You know what I mean? I'm just the guy out there who thinks of this joke, so I perform that joke. Somebody described it as like hard to get a hold of. Another person described me as like a Wiggles character gone wrong which is kind of fun because I also don't swear that much <laughs> probably the best way of answering that is if we hear an audio clip I wanted to do some jokes about uh, the news but things are grim so uh, instead I actually um, I actually have a bunch of jokes uh, from August 20th 2018 <laughs> 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 that's what we're going to do uh, August 20th, 2018, John Post. I know you guys get that here. That's a big joke in your hand going, you know. Oh, you wish you could see the biggest joke that I put in my hand. <laughs> I'm John McDonald, and you're in the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM, and that was Lower Hut Tawani Hotani in action. You can see him in action as part of the Fringe Festival in the Cavern Club in Wellington the 19th to the 21st of February. But sadly, that means it's the end of this week's show. A big thank you to all our guests today, and a big thank you to you for listening to the show and supporting Wellington Access Radio. Now you can listen again to the show as a podcast on the Hudson pages of accessradio.org.nz or check out my Facebook page for links to some of the individual interviews and stories and my Facebook name is John McDonald NZ. If you have a suggestion of a hut story, piece of music or poetry, then do message us either on Facebook or email the team. And our email is thehutzone at outlook.co.nz. Do join me again next Thursday in the Hut Zone show. Until then, keep safe and let's go out with some local music from Ice and Ray's Touch.life album. Here's Icebergs Off the Coast. Hairi Ra. Thank you.
program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.